You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to or watching Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previn, and joining me today for a special edition of the hashtag FemSquire series is Linda Hinkle. She has a practice in New Jersey and practices primarily family and divorce law. Welcome, Linda. Thank you very much for having me. And Petey, the law dog in the background. Oh, the law dog is in the background. And what is his name? Petey. Oh, okay. Well... He looks like he's pretty comfortable back there. He's not going to be doing much work. No, no, he's not. He's not a big help in the practice, to be honest. No. Well, actually, I used to work at a law firm where they had their dog and the dog had a very calming, soothing effect on the clients. Yeah, no, he really is very good at that. I, I, when I was in the office, as opposed to working from home, he used to come with me quite a lot. And he always knows whose lap he needs to be in to comfort them and calm them down. He's very good about that. Oh, I love that. That is so nice. That's why I want to get a dog. Yeah. That's another, that's another conversation. <laughs> so I start every interview out the same. Generally, where did you go to college and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? So I went to undergrad at Rowan University, which at that time was called Glassboro State. Um, and I went to law school at Rutgers. And I went there much later in my life. So when I grew up, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And I was for a little bit, but I ended up later in life moving to law. Oh, what kind of teacher were you? Um, well, I, I, I learned to be an English teacher. At some points, I did a variety of different things. But I also taught in community college. I taught in federal prison. I taught English in federal prison. So Wow. <laughs> That's cool. What was that like? So I was pretty young when it happened and I was in the I was in the unit that was just sort of in a in a trailer outside with no guards and I don't know why it never occurred to me to be afraid while I was stuck in a in a room with like 12 inmates who had felony charges but it just didn't even occur to me to be nervous about it at 27 or whatever have you so it was a great experience It sounds like it that sounds really interesting I would be a little nervous too I wasn't at all. And I have no idea why. I was probably crazy. <laughs> probably just too young to know any better. Right? <laughs> well, federal prisoners are generally, aren't those more like white collar crimes often? No, these were, this was minimum security. Um, the federal prison itself had the maximum security wing, which I was not in. This was minimum and they were mostly drug charges. Okay. Wow. How long did you do that? About a year. Yeah. Did you have any interesting experiences with any of them? Did they sort of get attached to you? Well, not attached to me, but I, I think that because they didn't really have a whole lot to do, um, they actually were some of the most interested, interested students I ever had because what else did they have to do there all day? So they were excited to do something different. Um, they were trying to work toward their GED. And I did have some really good conversations with them. And it, and it 
it, it completely convinced me at that time how much we really need to not remove the vote from people who have gone to jail because they had opinions and they had strong opinions and smart opinions that should be represented in our voting system. I totally agree with that. It's funny you mention it because I was just talking about this with someone a few days ago and totally agree with you on that issue. So why did you change your career? So I, at some point, just realized that teaching wasn't working out for me. I liked the teaching, but the bureaucracy of it was not really doing it for me. And, and you don't make a lot of money doing it on the co community college end. So, you know, I had to grow up eventually, I suppose. And I was married at the time uh, to somebody different than I'm married to now. And I got very sick, actually. I was, I was in the hospital in ICU. I almost died. And while I was there, I had done the uh, GRE to try to get into um, a doctoral program in English, having already done um, some master's work. And I got instead accepted into Rutgers on a program that they were doing at the time that since since then they've, they've gotten rid of, where they just went on the GRE score. So they, they offered me a spot and, and I had no intent to go to law school, but I took it as a sign. <laughs> wow, that is just kind of random. Yeah, yeah. I would have taken that as a sign too. Before that, had you ever thought about going to law school? I did. In fact, I went to law school right out of college for like three months and thought, I can't do this and gave up on it and thought I would never go back. And then I did. <laughs> wow. What did you not like the material? Because I know the first year of law school is so intimidating and my experience, at least, was you you question everything. You know, am I smart? Is everybody else smarter than me? Why am I not getting this right away? I was too young, and I needed I needed an opportunity to sort of learn what I was capable of doing. It seemed too overwhelming to me at that particular time in my life. But once I was in it as as a grown up, I was really just fine. Yeah. Did you have regrets about leaving law school? Um, I regretted letting people down in my life that that wanted me to do that, but I didn't regret it as a decision because it was the right decision for me at that time. Well, I applaud you for that because I knew so many people in law school that really hated it and were miserable, but they wouldn't leave because, you know, who knows, you know, pride or ego, the embarrassment of leaving and having people say, what happened? Um, right. But I think it's smart. I think if you're there and you realize this is not for me, I do not want to spend my life doing this. I think that's the smart thing to do is leave. Yeah. I think that much of my life has been defined by moments more when I left things that were not a good fit than as opposed to when I, when I went for things that, that were, I mean, just leaving what doesn't work is so powerful and so important. Well, that seems very apropos for what you do for a living. True, true. And I think I can help people with that, with that understanding that you can be all right, even after you've made a choice that seems earth shattering in that moment. That's really wonderful. I think that's a message that's so important for people that are contemplating divorce. Because the, we see so many people that just won't pull the trigger and, and just do it, just move forward. Why do you think you're like that? Um, I think that it's about, for me, it's about those moments with clients. So a lot of times it's you're doing procedural work or you're dealing with 
difficult other attorneys or judges or court staff or whatever, but there's those moments where you're talking to someone like they're your sister or they're your, they're your brother. And you're saying, look, I know you feel this way. I know you feel that way, but this is the smart thing to do right now. And if I, if you were my family, I couldn't tell you different. And those moments where you can really connect with someone and give them the advice they need, even if it's not the advice they want, to me, is just so rewarding. And sometimes people thank me for it later. Sometimes they don't. But I know in my heart that I've given them what they really needed in that moment. That's really huge. Because sometimes people don't get that from anybody in their lives. Right. I think more people feel kind of stuck a lot, whether it's a job or a relationship or, you know, it could be so many different things. But it sounds like you don't really have a problem kind of detaching from those things. I'm just curious, why do you think that you're like that? Was it something you were taught growing up? Um, I mean, I think my parents both were, were really wonderful and encouraging. I mean, I grew up working class and they kept telling me, you know, you can do whatever, we, we'll support you. And and they pushed me really hard on education. Um, so they they had an impact on it, certainly. But I also think that there were, there were traumas in my life in my early 20s that coming back from that, I concluded that I was, that nobody is really someone who deserves suffering. And I think we all as women sort of, develop that that instinct that we're supposed to suffer a little for, for love, we're supposed to suffer for our kids, we're supposed to suffer for whatever. But I, I really concluded that suffering sucks and I don't want to do it and I'm not going to do it and it, no one should. It's not because I'm special. It's everybody should not have to suffer. I'm totally on board with that. I always say you don't get a medal for suffering. Right. In the end, if especially if it's sort of self-inflicted or you're in a situation where you could get out of it, but you just don't, because we see a lot of that, you don't get a medal for that. You sure don't. And it's it takes away what, what life you have. And we only have a limited time on this earth. Yeah. I feel like you and I were separated at birth because I'm loving everything that you are saying <laughs> right now. Are the traumatic experiences you had, are those anything that you would want to talk about? Well, I don't talk about it a lot. I will say, I mean, I was, I was sexually assaulted and I, I don't think of that as a defining thing in my life. I think of the defining moment in my life when I decided that wasn't going to define me as the defining moment in my life. And so I don't discuss it a lot unless it comes up with someone who needs to know that they're not alone in that experience. Uh, you know, people are really uncomfortable with that conversation, even though so many women have gone through it and men have gone through it. And it's really... The moment that it happens to you, you realize how many people around you it's happened to because they come out of the woodwork and start sharing their stories. Well, that is so powerful. Were you very young when it happened? Early 20s. Okay. So that's, you know, when you're early 20s and when you're still developing, still kind of, at least I felt like didn't quite know who I was yet. Do you think that that had such a huge impact on who you became? I think it did, but honestly, it, I, I, I don't want to say it was all positive because certainly it was a horrible experience at the time, but I, I see it as a positive in my life because it really was a defining time where I said, I'm not, I'm not going to lay down for this. I'm not going to be a victim to this. I'm not going to, um, I, I don't, you know, people had their opinions. It stopped me from caring about what other people's opinions were because they did not jive with my reality and I simply don't accept opinions that um, are not meant out of love 
anymore from that time. Um, I, it taught me what I can endure and, and overcome. And it taught me what to, you know, sort of how to look at the world and understand that not everybody has opportunities um, to, to, sort of, to sort of heal like I did. I was lucky because um, I, wasn't, I wasn't trapped in a situation that I couldn't escape or I, I wasn't financially bound to a, the person who was harming me or something like that. So, you know, it really taught me empathy for other people who didn't have the chance to get out like I did. It's so powerful, though, that you're able to see that some po something positive came from that experience, because there, there's a coach that I follow, and he always says that whatever happens to you, if it's if it's something that was negative, there's always a gift somewhere or a lesson that you could learn from that. It's really hard for people to do that, though. I mean, how many people do you encounter in your divorce practice that really just can't seem to get past the fact that the marriage is ending? There's there's quite a lot. And and honestly, that's again why for me that that moment of, of conversation with the person is so important because some people, and this is not my client, these are not my clients. I, I don't do well with these clients. The people who want to use the divorce process to get revenge and think that at the end of it, they're going to feel better. Family court is not there to make you feel better. You are not going to feel better at the end of it, no matter what you do, no matter how much money you spend, no matter how much, how many letters your lawyer sends or how many things you put in a certification, you aren't going to feel better. Um, you know, and I tell my clients, do you want to be, do you want to, do you want to work toward feeling better? That's not going to work. Or do you want a solution that's going to enable you to go on with your life? Because that's what we're here for. That's what lawyers are supposed to be doing, giving them a way out of, of situation, not encouraging them to trudge through the emotion. Uh, you know, that's, that's not what we're here for. I agree with that so much. And it's so refreshing to hear an attorney say that because I think there's so many attorneys in our practice that kind of just, I say, follow a template. You know, the client comes in, you file a complaint, and then you do this, and then you do that, and everybody's the same. I think that's just that old model is just broken. I don't think it's working. I don't think people want it. I, it really doesn't help people, in my personal opinion. So it sounds like you're kind of on board with that, that way of thinking. So for a lawyer drama's good money, right? Yeah. So the more we encourage our clients to be angry and to file this and file that and, and send this letter and complain about this or that, the more money we make. But, you know, I would rather make my money honestly and not by encouraging people to do things that don't have a result that benefits them. Yeah. I always feel like at the end, they're just going to be unhappy anyway. And then they're going to leave and say, well, I don't really know what my lawyer did for me. <laughs> so how do you kind of vet your clients to make sure that you guys have the same mindset? Like you're not just getting someone who wants revenge. So, I mean, a lot of times you can pick it up in the consult and, you know, that's, pretty clear. And, and I think also they vet me. So I do free consults in part because I think that you're trying to learn whether this relationship works for either one of you. And I will come right out and say what my philosophy is. And if somebody's philosophy is different and what they're looking for is that churning sort of experience, they, they're going to figure out pretty quickly. I'm not the lawyer for them. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you don't realize it until you're in, you know, or the person turns, like they start off reasonable, but then something happens and 
and they are not coming back, I, I can't always stay with those clients. Um, you know, if sometimes I can pull them back from the brink, but sometimes I can't. And that's, that's to me too, that's too painful an experience for my staff and myself to, to try to, to try to pull somebody back from their intent to use the legal process to, to hurt as opposed to try to get through the process. So let's go back a little bit. We kind of got a little off topic, but this was all good stuff. So you went to school for law and you were like, this is not happening right now. Or at least you weren't interested. And is that when you went back to school or you changed your major? It's just not that simple. So I went to undergrad and I got my degree in English. And then I went to law school for that brief period of time. When I came out, I worked for a congressman for a few years. Then I wandered around and I did a bunch of different things and eventually went back and got a master's in teaching, taught for a while. Then I ended up getting my master's in English and I finished that concurrently with my law degree like a crazy person. You definitely had the English bug. Yes. Do you like to read? I love to read. I love literature. I still teach sometimes um, in, at Rowan uh, as an adjunct. I teach English courses now and then. It's not for money. It's for just because I want to get back into it because those moments of, of teaching are still beautiful and, a, and an experience that I don't want to completely let go of. I've always had a secret fantasy of going back to school and taking literature or art history Something like that, because let's face it, when you get out of school, the liberal arts degree, you don't, you just have a degree. It doesn't really matter what it's in. But I always felt that people who took literature or art history or history, they just seem to know more about the common things that most Americans just don't seem to know. I think it's important to know about literature. I do too. I do too. And of course, there's a movement away from that in academia right now, a movement away from the liberal arts. And that's really unfortunate. And although I, I certainly understand that, um, you know, the costs of an education are so high and that we want to be focused on what you can do and we should be doing that, it is also important to learn to think critically because that is the backbone of everything we do, including have a democracy. Yeah, I don't want to get into politics, but it's interesting how somebody, anybody really can, if they have a huge following on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, they can just say certain things and their followers will just accept it as true. They won't even question it, you know? So it's like, where is, is the critical thinking? Well, even beyond that, just, just headlines. Okay. The thing that uh, I have like a pet peeve about this. So when it comes to law and, and things that happen in the law, no reporters ever get this right. They do a headline that says what they think a, a judicial decision is. And this could be anything, whether it be small local thing or state or Supreme Court. They'll give a headline of what they think it is. It usually isn't that at all. Like that's just not even what the, the decision is saying because they're, and no one's reading the decision. And the decision is so much further away from what the reporters are saying it is. And we're not doing that source research. We're not critically thinking about the things we're hearing. And that's from, from liberal and conservative sides of the media. That's, that's everybody. We just, we need to be more critical about looking at the way things really are. I've seen that too. I've seen those crazy headlines. Yeah, It kind of ruins me from watching movies too, because most of that <laughs> stuff's just wrong. So I have to ask, who was the congressman that you worked for? 
Rob Andrews, first congressional district state in New Jersey. Okay. Okay. Wasn't his wife, uh, Camille Andrews? Yes. And she taught me evidence. So did that kind of inspire any political aspirations ever? So I've been in politics all my life to some degree. Do I ever want to run for anything? Heck no. I am way too forward and I am going to tell people off and it just isn't going to work. But I have supported many candidates in many different roles and, and participated in that process in a variety of ways other than ever running, which I will never, ever do. Yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I can't play that game. No. Put, I can't put on the face, you know? Right. No, people are exhausting and um, trying to campaign. And I learned so much from, from Congressman Andrews about how to, how to live my life and how to run my practice even. I did not know at the time that I would be doing that. But just the, the, the effort he put forward and the fact that he was able to go, go, go all the time. And he had a skill about remembering everybody he ever talked to, which I don't have. He knew their names. He knew what they were wearing and what they talked about back in 1982. I mean, he was excellent at that. He taught me so much about how to work with people. That was a great experience for me. And then you sort of accidentally on purpose, or maybe the universe was pulling you there. You, you sort of landed in law school. Sounds like you went to Rutgers Camden. Yes, I did. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Belmar, which is a little town, not the one by the shore that has a lot of money, but the one that doesn't have a lot of money. It's like Belmore, right? Like M-A-W-R? Yes. I've heard of the town, never been there. So you miss nothing. No. So you went to Rutgers Camden. Did you go full time as a day student? I did. I did. I was married at the time. My parents did help me uh, with with getting through college a little bit um, because they, I mean, law school, because they were just so excited about it. My dad was over the moon. I mean, I've lost them both since, but they were yeah. so excited about me going to law school. It was their dream come true because both of them just had high school educations. I love that. I, you told a story recently on Facebook about a washing machine. <laughs> yeah. So, so like I said, we, we grew up, I didn't have, we didn't have a lot of money and um, you know, in the 80s, I think we started to suddenly sort of emerge from from being from having less money to having a little bit more because my mother went back to work. My father's big dream was that I would have enough money so that if an, if an appliance broke, I didn't have to worry about it. I could just go buy another one. The hell with it, Linda. Just go buy a new, another one. That's the dream. You know, to him, that was everything. That and being able to buy a new car was the dream because when he grew up he grew up in coal mining district in Luzerne County PA and he says he he used to say he remembers his mom looking at uh, looking at his dad and saying you know we only have like a quarter to get us through the rest of the week I mean they were dirt poor that's so inspiring to see how far you've come oh they were they were the best I mean my parents were so supportive I was very very lucky in that regard are you an only child Yes. Spoiled little princess. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not bratty. You don't seem bratty. No, but my dad used to say that that daughters and dogs are for spoiling. So <laughs> kind of true. Yeah. And grandkids, I guess. <laughs> okay. So did you like law school better the second time around? I guess you did because you stayed. I loved it. I, I really did. But at that point I was I was more mature. I understood where I was in my life. 
I wanted it and I was committed to doing it and I just went for it. And I really, I loved the experience. Did you know what kind of lawyer you wanted to be at that point? Absolutely not. Um, but I was always attracted to the family law cases that came up and I started taking more family law courses. And I remember thinking to myself, it looks like I'm going into family law. Why couldn't I have thought of something or been attracted to something more lucrative? <laughs> but it turned out it's not that bad. So <laughs> People always laugh and say that divorce lawyers will always have a job. True. I don't know about you, but I really was so nervous to go to court, even though I'm this person who's intentionally putting myself on camera now. At the time, I knew I wanted to do family law, but I really was afraid to go to court and I just kind of got over it. But did you have any of that kind of stage fright, if you will? Oh, I still do every single time. I mean, I think that if you're not afraid of the unknown, you're you're not paying attention because you're walking into a place where you don't unless you have a tentative decision or something, you have no idea what the person making the decision is going to ask you, what they're thinking, how they feel about the situation. You have no idea what your client is going to do. And sometimes they do some crazy stuff. You have no idea what the people on the other side are going to do or say, or what surprises are going to erupt. If you're not a little bit afraid, you're, you don't care about your job. And I feel like these days, I feel like when I first started practicing law, I've been doing this about 16 years now unless I'm just having a selective memory, I felt like the judges were a little bit more predictable. I think it depends because, I mean, in family court, our judges change so fast. You know, they put the they put the judges in to family court to start, no matter what they are, just because they think it's easier. <laughs> you know, they last until they're good at it, and then they take them out and move them somewhere else. So we're constantly getting different judges. Uh, I mean, every year it seems like there's always, or even sometimes mid-year, brand new person, brand new person. And we can't predict what they're going to do initially. Sometimes they become predictable and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you just never know what they're going to do. So it's, it's, you, you always have to roll with it. They worry me more than the adversaries because adversaries, there's only so much in their, in their, in their, in their tool chest that they can throw at you in court. And I'm pretty confident about handling those sorts of surprises, but judge surprises are surprises I would rather not have. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of stuck with the judge surprises, right? Cause right. they're the ones making the decisions. I kind of feel like people are moving towards mediation. I think maybe there's more people that see the value of mediation. If people are happy with what they've come to and they're not waiving anything major that they really need, I think that's great when people can work that out. That's how I did my divorce. We just worked it out between us. Was your husband a lawyer? No. He no. must have been terrified. Would <laughs> have been, honestly. <laughs> oh, we won't talk. We'll talk about that off camera. <laughs> I'll ask you about that later. So what did you do right out of law school? What did you do for work? So this is where you start to realize I'm insane because I came out right when the, the law market sort of fell apart. I thought I was going to have a job with the state, but then there was a state hiring freeze. So yes. no job with the state, no jobs in big law meant that everybody who was going to big law is getting all the clerkships and no jobs in medium law. So I started my practice within a week of getting my bar results. I can't believe you did that. I do always think those people are insane. 
completely crazy. But my decision-making was pure survival. It wasn't, oh, this is what I want to do. It was, well, I enjoy eating, so I'm going to have to do something here, and I'm going to have to do it relatively quickly. And so that's that's what I did. And I, my husband at the time said, well, what happens if this fails? And I said, Shh, it is not going to because I don't have a choice. <laughs> don't put that out into the universe. Yep. <laughs> Did you feel like you had maybe a little bit of a cushion because you were married and you, there was a second income? Yeah. I mean, and so the startup costs were relatively slim. And another lawyer that I knew at Rutgers who had been out for a bit um, had an office that she was sharing with somebody who apparently just sort of cracked up and left one day and didn't come back. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, so the office space was like $250 a month for my half of it. So I, I moved into there. I, you know, what else did you really need? A phone, you know, I mean, it yeah. was, it was relatively inexpensive to start. So all I needed in order to make my bills for the month, including what I had personally, because we were already living at law school level, you know, of, of income. So it wasn't a lot. I needed like a thousand dollars a month. Well, you know, I mean, I, I could do that. So and I've never in my entire time doing this since November of 2009, when I opened my doors, I have never had a month where I didn't make a profit. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that That's that's more than pretty good because a lot of businesses, what's the statistic that fail within five years? Yeah, I mean, sometimes the profit was small, particularly in the beginning, but there, it, it, I've never had a, I've never had a month where we were in, you know, we were in trouble like to the degree that you, you become concerned. So how did you figure stuff out? Like, how did you, cause you didn't know how to do anything, right? I didn't know how to do a darn thing. And I was terrified every day. And every time the phone rang, I looked at it like, oh no. And then had to answer it. Um, but I just did it. I, I just did it. I got all of the practice materials I could. Every extra dollar that I had, I spent with um, with Ickel getting books on how to do things and templates and and you know going to classes and learning and I spent everything on that in marketing, every dollar. So okay, that's funny that you were terrified every single day. <laughs> what were some examples of what terrified you? Like, would somebody call and say, "Hi, I want to know if I can modify my alimony." Would you be like, "I don't know what to tell them." <laughs> Why would you do that? No, I knew the basics because like I said, I, I, I did, knowing that I was going this direction and while I waited for my bar results, I read everything I get my hands on. So I had some, I had basic knowledge. I had taken a family law class. I had some idea of the basic stuff. Obviously novel things even still come up that, you know, you don't expect, but less, less so now certainly than when I first started. But no, I would just, I would wing it. And, and remembering that, you know, at this point I'm in my, in my thirties, like I'm not, I'm not a yeah. kid, you know, I, I can sound like I know what I'm talking about even when I don't, which is the key thing you need to be able to do as a lawyer. Um, you know, I just, I, I made it work and I, I, you know, I think I did, I think I did a pretty good job considering what I, what I had to work with at the time. I also had the other lawyer in the office who had a lot more experience, who was more than willing to help me when I got stuck with things. She wasn't doing family as much. Um, but she had some knowledge about how to work around the system and things like that. And she was, she was very helpful to me in, in sort of mentoring me in that way. So it sounds like it was kind of a blessing the way everything just happened. 
I was very lucky. And, and, you know, I, since then, a lot of people have come to me and said, well, how do I start a practice? And I, you know, I've walked them through it, but to some degree, there's, there's an element of it. That's just pure, your, your personality and your ability to deal with how crazy that is. And secondly, just pure luck. And, um, you know, I, I had a, a mentor who I met with who encouraged me to, to move forward. And, and, you know, one of the things he said was bottom line, and he said it a little gruffer than this, but I'll spare you the language that you had to have, you know, some real courage and chutzpah to, to do something like this. And that was probably the one thing I did have as opposed to, you know, money or experience or any of that. Yeah, I think it, it, that's true. If you if you had all the other stuff, but not the chutzpah, might not, not have worked out. Yeah. How did you get your clients? I started reaching out to people that I had known in politics or other areas of my life and just let them know this is what I was doing. Um, I, you know, I was on social media back then too. And, you know, I, I, I promoted myself in that way. I started doing marketing. I went to different, you know, sort of luncheons and things like that and introduced myself. I spent everything that I had on education and marketing. And that's, that's how it started. And like I said, in the beginning, I needed like two, three clients a month to be doing well. So yeah. it really wasn't that hard of a pull as opposed, and you know, as opposed to now when I, you know, the, the budget is much bigger. Yeah. The, there wasn't a lot of pressure. Right. I think a lot of associates at some point do the math, like, okay, work here. This is how much I get paid. I have to bill X hours a month. And then you start thinking, well, because I th feel like in my situation, I got a little burnt out and I started thinking, well, if I was on my own and I had really low overhead, you know, how much would I really have to bill just to even make what I'm making now? And it wasn't really a lot. So right. you kind of start doing the math, but I have to acknowledge that when you have your own business, you're a business owner, whether you realize it or not. And this is something I talk about a lot is you weren't just a lawyer. So you weren't just learning to be a lawyer at the point. You were also learning how to be a business owner. You're really not just a lawyer. And when people do that math, they don't calculate in the countless hours you're going to spend dealing with technology and and insurance and the state and taxes and all of those other things that you have to do. And that's a lot. It's not, it's not a light load. It's a heavy load. And if you get employees, wow, that increases a lot. So, you know, there's, there's other things to consider besides just your billable hours. I can do, you know, three, four billable hours a day, but that doesn't make my day not 10 hours. It's just not. Yeah, well, it's true. And and I see that even now with my own staff and associates over the years, when back when I was working for someone else, I think I did sort of have this mentality that, well, I'm here churning out all the work and he's making all the money. I, I mean, I'm simplifying it because I did recognize that there was work, but I think you truly don't get it. You don't ever understand until you're actually the one that has to do it. And are you working from home now or is this your office that we're seeing? I am 100% working from home since COVID. Okay. And how have you found that to be? I love it. I'm never going back. Love it. Um, That's what we, that was our experience too. So are you going virtual? Is your firm going virtual? 
So at this point, we have one person that is always in the office um, to deal with drop-ins, answer phones. You know, we have, I mean, we have VoIP, so everybody can, can answer the phone, but she's there. And uh, everybody else is working from home since, since March. And I think for the most part, they all like it. I am not going to change that while COVID is still a thing. Uh, if, you know, when that day comes that we are out of the woods, then, you know, perhaps we will move partially back. I don't know. Uh, but I'm not, I've learned that we can do all this from here. And it's more productive for me. I think for some of my staff, it's more productive. Some of them, I think, would prefer to be back in the office. So I'm going to kind of give them some options. Um, but it, there's, we were able, we had already sort of had the infrastructure to do this set up. We had everything online. I'd always done that because I wanted to have the ability to work from the car while you're waiting for quarter, this or that. So it only took us like a day or two to fully move everybody home. And that gave us a huge advantage because some big firms are still trying to figure it out at this point. And I, I think that clients are no longer expecting us to be there like they were before. And I don't think that's going to change. I think they're still going to expect now the convenience of being able to do everything online that they can do with us now. Well, I think we're finding that it works. You can do it. Yes. People, you know, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier is change. People just resist change. And I think there's no better example than the court system why on earth has the family core in New Jersey not been doing e-filing long ago? Right. They've been talking about it for years, but now they had no choice. And it really comes down to, we don't want to put in the time and money to change, but when you don't have a choice, you do it. And they did it and it's working. I mean, it has, it has its problems, but its problems are minimal compared to the problems that would be if we didn't have it. And they'll iron those out. I mean, anytime you change a system, you're going to see where the kinks are and you just kind of fix them. So it's official then you're remote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're remote. And, and I think it's great. I, I do. We, this is, this is better for everybody. I mean, your quality of life is just so much better. And you found that your clients are happy with it too. Clients are happy with it. They can do everything online. They also don't have to trek to the office to do things. Some of them would like to. I think it's it's minimal. Some of them like to drop stuff off because they're not really tech savvy. And that's fine. We have somebody there to accomplish that for them. So, you know, it's all very doable. Going back to when you first started out, what would you say were some of the biggest lessons you learned? Maybe from mistakes when you were really getting your business going. I mean, there have been so many lessons over the years, it's really hard to quantify, but I, I would say uh, probably some of the biggest things I've learned is what to look for in staff. I mean, initially I had nothing and then, you know, I sort of had the money for only so much and, you know, maybe the quality wasn't always there as much. Having, the, having a strong, good staff is everything. It's everything. Consider yourself really lucky because it is, it's hard. It's hard to find it is. good people. Yeah. What about personnel management? I'm very hands-off. I can't work with somebody. I have to babysit. I am there. You have a question, you have a problem. I will back you up anytime. No client is ever going to mistreat my staff. They will get a personal call from me informing them they need to cut that out. 
but I don't like to hover over people. I tell them where we are in a certain, you know, case or whatever, and let them do their thing. And they will come to me and we work together very well. I, I just don't micromanage. And the, the people that I work best with are the people that can, can work that way. And that's what I have right now. I can't stand to micromanage. I, I don't like feeling like I have to do that. Right. So if some, if I discover that someone's not doing what they're, they should be doing, or it's, you know, not up to our standard of excellence, um, that kind of upsets me. Cause then I start to feel like, well, maybe I should be micromanaging. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when you, I know now you've that you've had your staff for a while and they're great, but in the past, over the course of your practice, what, how do you handle those situations? So I start off with just trying to tell them where they're not meeting my expectations, giving them benchmarks to get to the expectations. If they do that, great, then we were on course. If they don't, then I know that it's just not working. And um, there's a trail of bodies behind me and I'm okay with that, Um, you know, because if if we can't work together, you might be great somewhere else, but it's not going to work here. Can I hear the breakup conversation? (laughs) Well, they're always different because it depends on what the person is like, right? So some of them are very, it's very sort of sad. And and sometimes it's really just like, yeah, you gotta go. (laughs) So you don't just leave a post-it note on their desk. No, no. No, Those are the worst days, you know, like when I know in my gut it's time I hate that. And I can't wait. Like, it's not, you know, like I will set the person up so that I know like, okay, these are the benchmarks that they have to fail before I'm going to get there because I do want to give everybody a chance. So I will give them the chance. And when I know the chance is not going to work out, I I can't wait anymore. Like I I have to just do it because I know this is the inevitable result. Rip the bandaid off. Yeah. You know, I've, I've literally, I mean, at times, I've had some really emotional situations where people were very upset and, you know, other times it's just no surprise, but I just, I do what I have to do. I've always felt that people, people should know, they should know it's coming. Cause but they don't, they don't. I'm always, <laughs> I'm always shocked by that, that they seem surprised. Right. And right. I'm always thinking, but how, you know, we've, we've had so many talks and so many conversations about you know, different problems here and there, but they're always surprised. Well, it's one of the mysteries of the universe, Linda. I'll never know the answer. Me neither. (laughs) Was there ever a time where you were like, God, I don't know if this is for me. I, you know, this running a business stuff, maybe I should just go look for a job. Never, never. Because honestly, I think about, I'm spoiled now. I can tell clients that I don't want that I don't want them. And I can't imagine being in an environment where I have no choice but to represent someone I find too difficult to manage or or reprehensible or, you know, that there's some issue. I also can't imagine, I can never go back now to being an employee. I'm ruined. I'm ruined. Yes. There's a certain level of freedom, even though you have big responsibilities because you're running a business and you have to make payroll and, and make sure that your clients are being serviced in the way that you want them to be. But there's definitely a certain level of freedom. And yeah. so I, I feel you there. I've heard people say 
there's just entrepreneurs just have a different mentality. Would you agree with that? I think that's absolutely true. I think it's, if you're not a person that can motivate yourself, you're not going to make it as a business owner. You're just not. Um, Some people, and that's not a failing. Some people are motivated by external things, by someone telling them that they need to do X, Y, and Z, or by, you know, certain benchmarks that are set by other people. I do really well setting benchmarks for myself and monitoring my own progress. It is, it's an area that I've always been good at. I was good at it in school. It's why, it's why I couldn't quit school. Like I was, I mean, I've done so much education because I love that process of ruling myself and have become good at it. So that's, I think, where most people who can't make it as a business owner fail. It's just you, you can't get slip into the mindset of, well, I run the business. I can take off the afternoon. Well, sometimes you can, but you can't be doing that all the time. It's sometimes like the universe decides what days you're getting off. You know, if there's a problem that needs immediate attention, you have to do it. That's it. You're the boss. You have to deal with it. But but then you do get the lugger sometimes of saying, okay, well, I'm not, I need a mental health day. You know, there's nothing big going on. I'm taking the day off. So that part is, is about the freedom part is nice. Yeah. But it sounds like you definitely have that entrepreneurial spirit and mindset that I was talking about. So speaking of benchmarks, what's next for you? Well, I just did second edition of my book and that was on my list for this year. So next for me really is I want to focus on building my mediation practice and within the confines of the practice that I have and um, just continuing on the way we are. I think things are going well. I actually am really happy with the changes that we've implemented since covid Um, We've become a little bit more selective about the clients that we choose. We are, we're very busy right now and we're working very hard and I I feel really good about that. Continuing to support my team and keeping them safe and healthy is my number one priority as we get through the rest of the, the COVID experience. Being an employer is a responsibility and we are responsible for taking care of, of the people that we employ. You're a good boss, I can tell. I try to be. Not everybody would agree with that, but I think the people I have now would. <laughs> well, you know, there's this uh, little saying I've seen on t-shirts and whatnot, and it says, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just because I have to tell you what to do occasionally and how to do it doesn't mean I'm bossy. I'm the boss. So I see a business as sort of like, it's, you know, it's my little sandbox. It's my vision. And I get to decide, you know, how things are going to be carried out and what's going to go on in that sandbox. So if I invite you as an employee to come play in my sandbox, well, you got to do things the way I want you to do them, right? Right. As much love and respect. Tell me a little bit more about the book. What's the name of the book? It is Breaking Up, Finding and Working with a New Jersey Divorce Attorney. And it is strictly about um, sort of how to select an attorney and also a little bit about the process so it's kind of a primer for people who are thinking about it and, and just want to, you know, sort of envision what their next steps are. And what gave you the idea to do that? So I started writing little pieces that I would just share with clients or or, or blogs or whatever on the internet. And um, it, it came to me that, that a resource like this would be useful. 
Uh, I am not the divorce lawyer for everyone. And the book makes that clear. Um, everybody's different and what they want and what they're looking for is different, but clients need to think about what it is they want before they go in and talk to an attorney, um, not just with the attorney, but in the divorce in general. Do you have an ideal client? How would you describe him or her? I think anybody who is looking to really actually understand the process and is prepared to listen to the lawyer they're paying uh, you know, certainly with with pushback, you know, what you want as a client matters to me. And I want to get as much of what you want that's reasonable for you that I can. But you also have to be able to hear what is possible and what the costs are of what you're looking for and whether that meets the, the burden of it being worthwhile to pursue. So reasonableness to me is the thing that matters the most with clients, with working with adversaries, with anybody, you know, just be reasonable and we can work it out. Well, a lot of people think what they think reasonable is, is not the same as what someone else thinks reasonable is. So how do you sort of reconcile that? So read, and I tell people this all the time. So there's, there's your street concept of what's reasonable and just, and then there's the law. Mm. And they are not the same. They are not even living in the same zip code. What you think makes sense is not what the law is going to do. This is what the law is going to do. And it's, you know, in most cases, it's somewhat clear. Sometimes there are, there are, there's possible arguments in both directions, but many times it just is what it is. Example, people think, well, it's not fair that I should have to pay alimony if she committed adultery. You're going to anyway. If you're if you're in the alimony world and, and the analysis is that you would pay alimony, her adultery or his cruelty in most cases, or you know, none of that matters to a judge. It's it's about dollars and cents. It's not about your feelings. And as much as your feelings matter, they don't matter to the judge. So we have to come to a place where we're looking at what is possible. Will we see any more books out of you? Like maybe a memoir or fiction? Not a memoir and probably not fiction either. I, I, I've thought a lot about doing a book about domestic violence law in New Jersey and um, not necessarily, I mean, there are good books that explain the, the process and good books that explain what the law is, but sort of how to address it as someone going through it. Um, you know, that's something I've thought about doing. I don't, that's going to take, I would want to bring in other people to work on that as well from different disciplines. So that will take a little bit more effort than I have to give right now. So maybe next year. <laughs> would that sort of be directed to the plaintiffs? victims yeah. of domestic violence? Yes, because, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, one of the hallmarks of domestic violence is that people are often financially controlled by the person committing the acts of violence. So they often don't have access to lawyers. And one of the things that I've often lobbied for and tried for and hope someday we get to is that there should be a fund in New Jersey for domestic violence victims to have attorneys at um, final restraining order hearings and sometimes for follow-up hearings that have to do with custody and, and, and money and things like that. Um, right now, we do already have surcharges for DUI, for instance, 
and they're pretty high, like $1,500. But we don't, we have like a $50 surcharge on somebody who's convicted, you know, who, who gets a final restraining order against them. If we added some money to that, we could fund programs that provided lawyers for people. But in the meantime, we need to give them as many resources as we can. And one thing that I've always done is offered uh, organizations to send people to me for a free consult. Uh, you know, maybe they can't afford to hire me to do their restraining order, but I will walk them through the process and explain what they need to do, at, you know, from the legal end. All right. So I'm a bit of a book nerd. And I must know what you read, what's your favorite literature? Do you have an absolute favorite book ever? Wow. Um, so I read a lot. I've always read a lot, tons and tons. So I don't think I have a favorite. I read fiction. I read nonfiction. I've been on this really weird uh, kick about reading about evangelicals in America lately who either you sort of sort of left the, that movement or who are who are in it but have different opinions about it um, just because of the impact that it's had socially I think on and on our politics also on race issues I've, I've been doing a lot of reading about that as well but I also read fiction and I read anything from classics to to current fiction to young adult even i love me some francesca lea block uh you know there's there's just a there's so much good literature out there i can't eat just one <laughs> <laughs> do you are you an avid reader are you reading like one book a week or you know, what's your pace it depends on what's going on like work-wise sometimes i just want to sit there and stare into space and other times i'm like on a reading frenzy so um, but I sort of have this goal right now in the last few months since COVID, I've been trying to read 12 books a month. So that's. And wow. That's Wait, 12 book. books a month. Did you mean a year? No, I mean a month. And I, and I've been doing it like, and some of them are, some of them are not like heavy lifting. Some of them, yeah. you know, I do a, a balance. So, you know, it might be reading a heavy book about race one week and then, then like slip it in a little novel that's like, you know, 200 pages the next or, you know, it's. Well, what I would really love to do is if you could email me your a, a reading list and I could publish that. Oh, that will look weird, but I, I will do that. Why? Because it's such a varied genre. All over the place. I mean, like I get my book of the month club pickings that are sometimes pretty silly and sometimes it's like heavy. You know, I, I have a pile sitting over here. It's got Candide in it and cast and um my uh, the, the kkk book about my family and the kkk and i have um i don't know some other book of the month thing and it's it's crazy i'm all over the place <laughs> are you a fast reader i am i mean i went through all this education and had to read a ton a lot all the time so i i'm a pretty quick reader i don't know how you could read 12 books in a month well, even when I was a little kid, I was like that. My my mother was a big reader and she encouraged me a lot. She used to take me to the library and she would let me pick whatever I wanted. I read Freud at like 10. I, I'm not sure if she knew what that was, but she was like, all right, whatever. And, and so, you know, I read all kinds of stuff and it, it's just always been a part of my life. And I remember I used to, I had a bedtime and I would, oh yeah, I'm going to bed. And then I would go into the covers and read with the flashlight all night. I did that. Yeah. 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 
I know. I love books. I'm just a complete and total book nerd. Like I really want to know what's on that bookshelf behind you, <laughs> but I think it's, it looks like it might be law books. No, the law books are over here for the most part. Back there are a lot of the classics. I have some of my prettier looking classic books. I got my Oscar Wilde and my Shakespeare and um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and all of that stuff. And my, my literature books from, um, from school, they're up there too, I think. I still have two of the Norton's anthologies. I have just, I won't get rid of them because I'm like, I, whatever's in there, I probably should have read at some point in my life. So they will stay on the bookshelf. Hopefully I will crack them open and actually read this stuff. I like to look at my little notes from when I was like 22 and stuff I had to say about, I, I, I apparently had a really great time reading about the Puritans because I have so many notes and some of them are hilarious. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Then, yeah. It's interesting to see what you thought when you were 20 and what you think now. Right. Yeah. So what is one book that you feel like every American should have read if you want to have any kind of literature awareness maybe more than one this is going to sound very odd but it's the bible because it's right. something that people use all the time to support their positions and you need to know what you're dealing with and i think it should be read as a piece of literature you know you can read it in your as a religious piece if that's your background and that's your choosing but i think everybody should read it as a as as its effect on culture because it has hugely affected our institutions and the way that we discourse as Americans. That's really interesting you say that, but now that I'm thinking about it, you're absolutely right. I took a religion class in Rutgers undergrad and they did teach the Bible as literature. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting you say that. Although some people might get very upset when you say that. Well, I think, and, and it's fine to look at it from a variety of ways. I mean, you don't have to look at it solely as literature. It is literature. It also, for many people, has a rich religious tradition. And for some, that's negative, And for some, it's positive. But you can come at it from that religious perspective on the one hand, but still also from an intellectual perspective and understand it in different directions, which I think is how we have to in order to see how it plays out in our, in our social conversation. Have you read the entire Bible? Multiple times. Wow. That is really impressive. Just from start to finish, you just, it's so on your- Sometimes from start to finish, sometimes um, in, in different sort of chronologies, uh, just, it depends on what the study was. So, you know, you got to understand, I was raised somewhat religious. Um, my parents were not particularly religious, but took me to church. And I was raised in what was then called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is not Mormon. It was sort of the liberal hippie version of the Mormons. They don't exist anymore. They changed into a different church. And I don't belong to any church at this point. But my religious involvement started early. And I read a lot about that as well. And so for me, um, I started reading it as a religious text, later started to read it as a literature text. And then now I find myself reading it more as something that has so influenced our social world and our political world and how um, we may have at times properly or improperly uh, applied those things to modern problems. Mm, that sounds really deep. Yeah, well, I've had a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I 
it's only 11.20 right now, 11.20 a.m. Are there any other books on that list? On the list of? Of, of what you have to read. You know, if you haven't read this, you're, you need to go back to high school. Um, everybody should have read something by Shakespeare. What that is perhaps depends on the person. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that I, I don't know if everybody should have to read this, but I think a lot more people should have to read it than do. I'm a big fan of Oscar Wilde and he wrote a piece while he was in jail called De Profundis, which is a philosophical work that is pure genius in my opinion. And it affected me so much, you know, as a, as a person evolving. Well, I'm going to check that out. Thank you. Have you read the Quran? I have. Yes. What did you think of the Quran? Like how does it sort of compare to the Bible? So I struggle a lot with it because I feel that, um, and I think I should read it again because I think the translation that I read was probably a little bit of a weak translation and translation matters so much when you're reading anything that's, that's ancient and it's, um, you know, but it's, it's interesting to me how religions that feel they are so different have so many similarities. Yes. It's true. We really aren't. I mean, it's if we could take the things that we agree on and work from there instead of the things that we don't agree on, we'd be so much better shape, but we don't. Yes. Yes, it's true. So I like to end each interview with a series of questions. The first one would be, who do you most admire, living or dead? Mm. Ooh, that's hard. There's so many. Um, Who immediately comes to mind? Immediately comes to mind, I, I think, is Walt Whitman. And I know that there are some issues with him in terms of like you know racial conversation and things like that. But as a as a writer, he was profound and interesting and and so courageous in his time. Well, you are too. Well, thank you. <laughs> It's true. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Perfect happiness. Um, I don't think such a thing exists in this world. Uh, I think you can have imperfect happiness and I have that, you know, there's always going to be problems. We're human beings. We have, you know, right now coursing through my body is some kind of failing in, in everybody's body that's, that's going to trigger someday. There's always imperfections, but that's what makes us hold on to the perfections so much. That's a good answer. I've never gotten that answer, but I like that. What is your greatest fear? I think my greatest fear is probably just screwing up my life by accident um, and sort of checkmate. You know, like being in a place where you've you've done the thing by accident that ruins everything and now you're stuck, which is such a, I mean, that comes from literature, right? You know, there's always that big moment, that test the D'Urbervilles moment where you just like you wrecked it all and you can't fix it and you're going to end up, you know, dead with druids. It's, you know, it's just like. <laughs> okay, we went from up here, like really positive, like down, spiraled down, like it's real the Victorian fast. literature in my head. I can't help it. <laughs> okay, well, I I feel pretty comfortable saying that's probably not going to happen, but probably not. But it's a fear, and fears yes. are rational, right? Yes, yes, that's so true. What trade do you most deplore, and 
other people? Um, unreasonableness. What trait do you most deplore in yourself? So from time to time, I have whiny days and um, I, I get really sick and tired of it and bored with myself when that happens, but I, I allow it for a period. Like I'll be like, all right, you get two hours to complain here and then I want you to shut up. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's healthy. Yeah. I always give myself, if I feel bad, like if I, you know, didn't do oral argument in court the way I wanted to. And, you know, I find myself kind of dwelling on it. Like, why did I say that? Or why didn't I say that? And I kind of give myself like 24 hours to brood, which might be too long. Maybe I should do two hours. Everybody's time frame is different. I just get, I get sick of myself after two hours of whining. I'm just like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> like after a while, it's like, all right, let, let's move on. Okay. Yeah. It's done. Get over it. It's just time to move on. Exactly. What is your current state of mind? So right now I'm feeling pretty good. I, I have, um, you know, it was a stressful week last week because of world events, but um, this week is better. <laughs> okay, good. See, you got, you got past it. Yes. What is your most treasured possession? Well, so New Jersey defines dogs as possessions. So I'm going to go with dogs, even though I think of them as children. There's four of them. And, oh. uh, they are. Yeah. The other three aren't allowed in here when I'm on Zoom because they don't behave. Okay. Well, who, well, who is your favorite hero of fiction? And hopefully I know who the heck you're talking about because I really need to catch up on my literature. <laughs> Okay, favorite hero in fiction. That is, you ask me all these really hard questions because I have no idea how to, how to oh, there goes somebody at my front door. Let's see, a hero of fiction. Let me look at the shelf. Oh, that's the law books. They won't help. That's too hard. I can't, I have no idea. You're going to pass on that one? I have to pass on that one. There's so many. Okay, so if you are, you know, laying in bed in the middle of the night and it comes to you, just message me, okay? Okay, we'll do. Because now we all have to know. Okay, final question. Kind of weird. How would you like to die? Okay, so I want to go like my parents, which they both, I could see the moment they decided that they were ready. They were ready and they were prepared and this was what they wanted. Like their bodies had given out and they were like, all right, well, I'm done now. And they both waited until I was out of the room because that is how they were independent and they were going to do things their own damn way. And they did. And that's probably exactly how I would do it. Alone, facing my God and getting back into the arms of my family. It doesn't sound like you're afraid to die. I, I was for a lot of years afraid to die, but I have concluded that uh, I've already lived like 16 lives, so I'm way ahead and, you know, I'm not ready to go by any stretch of the imagination. I am lobbying for another 40 to 50 years, but if it happens, then, uh, you know, there, I don't, um, I don't, I don't fear that. That means you probably haven't hurt a lot of people in your life. You're not terrified that you're going to go to hell. <laughs> if you believe in that. <laughs> I do believe in that. I think a lot less people go there than some Christians think. But I, I, I think that it's, I think that, uh, you know, I do have a religious faith that, that uh, there is 
an afterlife that is that is loving and good, although I don't understand it. I will never understand God. I will never understand what's in God's mind. And that's where I differ with a lot of Christians who think they're pretty clear on it. Um, but I just trust that there's something good there. Do you think that when people are about to die that they can sort of pick like when that precise moment is going to happen? Because I've heard stories like that. Yeah, I, I, maybe sometimes, but I, I don't, I don't think my, my parents picked the precise moment, but they, they picked the season. You know, I think they, they chose the season and then they, they, you know, I mean, my dad literally sat up and he was very weak and I was suggesting all these things that they wanted to do to try to, you know, prolong it and this and that. And he sat up and said, no, I'm done. And I said, yes, daddy. Do you think he was lucid? Absolutely. I saw the crazy Native American look in his eyes that he got when he was determined about something. He was he, he was clear. That was the clearest moment that he'd had in a while. And I, I, I heard him loud and clear and obeyed. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So you're Native American. Partly, yeah. Oh, what is your the rest of your ethnic background? I'm a mess. I'm all over the place. You're a mutt. <laughs> such a mutt. And I did the DNA results and found out that I'm part African. Whoa, that's a surprise. And I bet that's a surprise to some of my um, some of my ancestors who are a little bit racist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, this has really been so fun. I feel like I could go like another 90 minutes. Maybe we could do, we could find a reason to do another one at some point. <laughs> so tell our audience how they can reach you if they're interested in talking to you more or uh, retaining your services. So you can find us on the web at uh, lindahinkle.com, L-Y-N-D-A-H-I-N-K-L-E, or you can find us on Facebook at Hinkle Law. Awesome. And we'll also have all the links to everything in the show notes so that people can find you. Thank you so much, Linda. I really enjoyed this. You're such a fascinating person and I would, I, I want your book list. Okay. You got it. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you for listening to wake up call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.